Welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast, where Sean Ellis interviews leaders from the world's fastest growing companies to get to the heart of what's really driving their growth. And now, here's your host, Sean Ellis. In this episode of the Breakout Growth Podcast, Ethan Gar and I interview Holger Seem, co-founder and CEO of Blinkist. Blinkist is a mobile app that allows users to listen to 15-minute summaries of nonfiction books. I personally was really impressed with the summaries from our book, Hacking Growth. They did a great job of capturing the key takeaways. So Blinkist's mission is really to bring learning into people's busy everyday lives. And in this discussion, we see the underlying principles of breakout growth in action. To test and learn quickly, Holger employs a cross-functional strike team where they attack the biggest challenges that could be impeding growth. And so they go on these missions to really figure out what's impeding growth and then work to address those. And they've really helped to develop strong word of mouth as a result of some of the findings that they had in these missions, as well as building a powerful paid acquisition machine. So before we get started with the interview, I wanted to let everyone know that we've announced the date of our next cohort of Go Practice, which is the Immersive Simulator for Learning Data-Driven Product Growth. So we're going to be kicking it off on March 10th, and Oleg and I, in this cohort, we spend an hour and a half with you each week building on the lessons that you learn in the self-paced simulator. And we're going to be offering a special price for podcast listeners that, uh, that send me a discount request through Twitter. So at Sean Ellis on Twitter or connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, or message me on LinkedIn. And, uh, if you send me a request before January 1st, I'll send you a discount to, to, to get started. And one of the benefits is that you don't have to wait until that cohort starts on March 10th. You're going to be able to get started with the self-paced lessons right away. Um, you can learn more about GoPractice at gopractice.io. But now let's jump in with Holger Seem, founder and CEO of Blinkist, and find out what's driving their breakout growth. Hi, Holger. Welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm joined here by uh, my co-host, Ethan Gar. Welcome, Ethan, as well. Hey, good to see both of you. <laughs> uh, at, at least hear us. That's right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was uh, checking my webcam to make sure it wasn't, uh, <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't showing me in my morning uh, beauty. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Holger, um, we're, we're excited to, to dig into Blinkist and learn, learn everything about it. Um, congratulations. It definitely looks like you have done some, some great things with the company. Um, before we really get into the, the growth story, can you give us maybe a bit of a explanation on, on what Blinkist is and the, the problem that it solves? Sure. Happy to. We, we started Blinkist in 2012 to help people to fit learning into their lives. And we do that by offering the key ideas from the world's best nonfiction books and podcasts in a bite-sized format. So when with Blinkist, you can listen to the key ideas from a podcast or from a nonfiction books in 15 minutes, sometimes even less, um, fit it in um, when you're commuting, when you do the laundry, when you're cooking something, when your eyes are busy, um, but you can listen to something. We help you to yeah, fill, that, uh, fill these pockets of time in your day meaningfully um, and inspire you um, and help you to learn something new. Excellent. Well, I, I had my first experience with Blinkist yesterday, so I, I got a chance to uh, kick the tires on it a bit. And I'll, uh, I'll give you that. I actually um, was able to track down my book in there, which was very cool and, and listen to that. But um, before we even kind of get into to my experience and, and um, more, more about Blinkist, it would be good to kind of rewind all the way back to the beginning. Like, When did you start the company and, and what caused you to, to feel like there was a need here that um, was not uh, was not being met. I mean, this this need that you said to fit learning into their lives was that the initial was that the initial goal you set out to to achieve? Yes, we had a um, we didn't have it that crisp, crisp, but basically that was the core <laughs> idea from the beginning. So back in 2012, early 2012, my co-founders and I we were in jobs. We were um, one and a half years out of university, and we felt uh, it was very hard to keep uh, up with our learning goals. We, we would learn on the job, um, in our jobs, but it was hard to 
fit in reading, whether it's books or magazines, it was hard to yeah just um, look beyond what we were doing in our jobs. Um, and we realized that not only we had this problem, um, but a lot of people had this problem. Everyone is curious. Everyone wants to grow personally, professionally, and be more knowledgeable. But a lot of people have a hard time to fit in all the reading and all the learning they want. And at the same time, back in 2012, smartphones were still newer, newer than they are today. And the app ecosystem was just exploding. And we thought, well, everyone, a lot of people complain that they don't have time to read. Um, but at the same time, a lot of people spend more and more time on their smartphones. So we thought, well, if we can bring meaningful learning content to smartphones, to smartphone screens, and fit it into those, uh, you know, into those shorter moments um, when you when you um, look at your smartphone, then we can build a great business. That's also a problem and um, and comes at the right time. Um, and that was the starting point. Um, we we started our initial idea was to start very broad with learning. The initial name for Blinkist was called Weightmate. Um, kind of your maid that helps you to fill waiting times uh, more meaningfully. But then eventually we decided to zoom in on books to because books, you know, providing the key insights from nonfiction books is more specific and it's sounds it's easier to explain and uh, the value is more explicit. Um, so we zoomed in on books, but the, the the vision and the purpose was always broader. It was always about learning in general and not just um, yeah summarizing nonfiction books. So, so what was the initial content then? Um, for for Weightmate, for that prototype, which we never launched, by the way, but the initial idea it was really just random, um, like topic-based content that uh, you could learn in three to five minutes. Um, okay. Then we so thought, yeah, that, that's technically Wikipedia. So you could technically also open Wikipedia uh, while, while waiting and then learn something. So it's probably hard to generate a willingness to pay for that. No one's going to pay for that. So we thought let's connect it to books and, and, and zoom in on books because books are very valuable for people and, and, and books have a price tag. So people have a willingness to, uh, for books and, and, and a specific desire to read more books or listen to more books. Um, and that's how we yeah, um, moved from this broad wait mate, fill your waiting times with learning um, to a more specific Blinkist, key ideas uh, from nonfiction books in 15 minutes. And so you said you you never really launched that prototype. So what um, was it? You, you kind of put the prototype out there to to more get some feedback on it, and then you honed in on what you felt like was the better opportunity. And what what did it look like that you actually launched with? I I, I assume you didn't have thousands of books day one. What, what like when did you say okay, th this is how many books we actually need to launch with, and, and what did that look like? Yes, yeah, so our launch library was um, fifty books, fifty titles. Fifty, um, okay. And the capacity we've built was to add ten titles per month. So it was very you know very small, both in terms of library and and new books we could release. But we thought with two to three books a week, we can already keep um, the audience engaged. And especially initially, we focused on um, we go, young professionals that are interested into uh, personal development and professional development. So the the topical focus was also more narrow. And we thought, you know, if we give our audience um, ten personal growth books a month, that already gets them, um, yeah, help, helps them to grow and and gives them a reason to um, to stay and and pay. And then, what language did you initially launch in? Because I know you're based in Berlin. So, was it? Did you launch in German, or was it English from the beginning? Or biggest mistake of our lives, we launched in German first. So we, we okay. thought, let's you know, let's let's launch a, a more controlled beta in a smaller market that is a whole market uh, to to learn and then uh, eventually to expand. And the reason behind that was, which is stupid in hindsight, is we didn't want to burn ourselves. We thought if we you know if we launch a product and content that uh, ultimately is not great and people see it globally, then um, we may yeah, burn our brand and ourselves before even starting. That, <laughs> I mean, that's so stupid in hindsight, but that's how we were thinking back then. We were, but it is funny how people think that way. It's yeah. like, you know, the, the real thing is no one notices. True. But yeah, somehow no one told us back then. So we launched in German uh, beginning of 2013 and then expanded to English uh, beginning of 2014. And that's okay. when things started to work better. The German market was not the best market to start in because here in Germany, people are a little less progressive, a little, you know, they need one or two years longer before they adopt digital models. And digital subscription back then was, um, um, yeah, wasn't, didn't, didn't work as well, uh, didn't work so strongly in Germany. 
Um, but in, in the English-speaking markets and specifically in the US, uh, it was much easier to establish that because customers were already used to paying for digital content and then to, to subscribe uh, for consumer subscriptions. Yeah, and then how how did you went like what were the the signs that you saw that said uh, we're really onto something now this this really seems to be working let's 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 get aggressive about growing this thing what was there do you remember a specific kind of was it in the data was it more qualitative feedback or a combination it was both so so qualitative feedback was great from the beginning everyone we pitched this idea to uh, was like well that's great I've been waiting for something like that I do have this problem. And I consider that solution. So we always got strong feedback that people have a strong intent for a product like ours. Um, but we couldn't scale it in the beginning. We weren't able to, to really find a, a, a growth loop and, a, and, a, and a, a growth engine. And then eventually, and then by the way, we launched with text only. Um, and in, in the in summer of 2014, we've been to San Francisco to TechCrunch Disrupt and talk to people there. And nine out of 10 people said, well, your product is great. Is it available in audio? Um, so we came back to, to Berlin and thought, well, you know, we should do audio. If everyone in, on the West Coast, and those people usually uh, have, a, have a clearer vision of the future, um, if everyone asks us, asks us about audio, we should um, consider audio. So by the end of 2014, we launched audio. We did some other business model hacks. So we launched an annual subscription um, instead of a monthly subscription. And um, these two hacks, adding audio and moving towards an annual subscription, um, really helped us to, to scale. And also, um, important to say, by that time, we had learned our lessons uh, when it comes to digital marketing. So um, we had the tracking in place, we, um, and we, we knew uh, how to, how to yeah, invest in digi in, in, into digital marketing, how to track things, and then how to double down. So all of these things came together by the end of 2014. And then since then, it's been a very constant growth driven mostly by paid acquisition. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm excited to dig into the growth engine here pretty quickly. But um, I wanted to ask, ask one more question kind of on the um, feedback from authors and feedback from publishers, um, given that, that you know, as, as I mentioned a, a moment ago, that I have a, a book, Hacking Growth, and I... You know, naturally, the first thing I did when I downloaded the app was to see if my book was in there, and uh, and it was. So I listened to it, and I was really impressed how how it distilled a lot of the key lessons that we had in the book um, it, into a, into a bite sized kind of fifteen minute chunk. And then the next thing I did was took one of my favorite books that I haven't listened to, or that I haven't kind of reviewed in a few years, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and just kind of did that as a, as a reminder of the key concepts from that book. And I found that to be really valuable as well. And so I'm, I'm curious if most authors get excited about it uh, and, and publishers, or if, uh, if there's kind of mixed feedback, is this, is this making it unnecessary to read my book or is it, is it more of a marketing channel for my book? I'm, I'm curious on that feedback. Yeah. So there's, uh, most authors are excited. So most authors, uh, um, that discover us and explore that um, their, their title is on Blinkist, or even for those that explore that their title isn't on Blinkist, they reach out and they're excited and they ask us uh, whether we can publish their titles if it isn't on Blinkist already, because they see the value um, of, uh, of expanding their audience um, through Blinkist. Um, so there are also a few authors, but really only a few that reach out and get mad because they wanted to be asked or they don't agree with uh, how we, you know, how we presented the key insights, or they they are afraid of cannibalization that people listen to the blinks and uh, no longer read the book. But that's really, I would say, factor one to twenty. So for every uh, twenty authors that reach out to us and are excited, one reaches out and is skeptical or um, or mad. And then even um, those that reach out to us um, and are rather skeptical. Um, uh, probably fifty percent of them we can turn around by explaining what we're doing by sharing some data. Um, so authors are fans, publishers are a little harder to, uh, to, to make fans. So publishers, we, we do work with a lot of publishers already, but, um, not with everyone already. And it's a, it, it was a long journey because publishers are a little more concerned about cannibalization, about, you know, in general, digital business models, disrupting their business, which is a quite uh, stable and profitable business. Um, but also with them, you know, the more, the longer we're in the market and the more we talk, uh, the better we can convince them. We do, we do, we frequently survey our customers and, 
Um, more than 50% of our customers tell us that Blinkist helps them to read more books or they use it to discover new books or they use it, as you said, to, to retain uh, books or to review them after they read them in full. Um, 40% tell us that um, they use it as a discovery tool. It, uh, it doesn't help them to read more books, but it helps them to make better choices of which books to read and to dip their toes into other topics that they are not able to read in long form. Um, and then only 9% of people um, say that they read less books um, due to Blinkist because they find out that, oh, um, th this book, you know, um, the, the key insights are all I needed to know. So no, uh, no need to, to still read the book. So ultimately... Yeah, um, that person probably wouldn't have read the book anyway. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, what, that's what we're uh, telling publishers as well, that um, if, if our content, or think about it that way, if our content really cannibalizes books, then we're not the problem. Then the product then publishers should really challenge their product and and, and you know and, right. and and develop better products. Which I don't believe by the way. I think most of the books are great uh, and have value and it's valuable to have, you know, these anecdotes and more examples and more um, you know, looking at a topic from our perspective. All that is valuable. Um, but it's like, you know, sometimes you need a three course dinner and sometimes you need a snack on four on the go. And we're the snack right. on the go. Absolutely. So I feel like I've got a pretty good handle on on what Blinkist is all about um, from these questions. Ethan, is there anything else that, that you would kind of dig into to get more of a handle on what the business is about? Yeah, I have some questions uh, for you, Holger. Um, you know, I went through sort of both tracks, the web and the mobile track to uh, to, to explore Blinkist. And I was curious, um, and I saw you have integrations with Kindle. Um, but is it correct? is it correct to assume that most of your usage is via mobile? Is that where, yes. where the world is today? Yes, almost exclusively. Um, we do see some on, on web, we see discovery. Uh, so some people discover on web, but then uh, you know, build their library and then they consume on mobile. And with Kindle, it's, it's, it's a feature we built for some of the heavy customers that use us a lot and that prefer to read uh, on their Kindle, but it's not that heavily used. But it's a cheap feature to have, so it's, it's not didn't uh, cost a lot of uh, time to, to implement. Gotcha. So you, you definitely see some people who start on the on the web, but do you try to move them to mobile from there, or do you really? Uh... We, we, we don't. I mean, we we're agnostic to that. If if, if users prefer to um, to consume Blinkist content on desktop, that's fine for us. But since most of our users uh, prefer the mobile apps, we put much more effort into our mobile apps. So we're, we don't have feature parity between web and app. You see some features and some experiences on the mobile app that are not yet on web. Web is rather an entry point and um, a discovery uh, discovery product for us. Gotcha. And you mentioned earlier that you know it was sort of a one of the sort of growth moments for you is when when you uh, discovered that people were in the U.S. were really looking for audio, and that kind of drove um, you know a step change improvement for you guys. Um, do you do you find today like like a lot more people are are actually listening to to, to your content or are, is it kind of a mix of reading and and, and listening or how has that changed over time? So it, it definitely um, changed towards audio. Uh, nowadays, seventy five percent of people rather listen to our content instead of reading, and also people who listen are more engaged because it's you have more moments in your day where you can listen to something versus reading to something. But that being said, I'm, you know, if you look at the types of learners out there, um, there are as many people who prefer to learn um, by, uh, by a reading than um, people who prefer to learn by listening. So technically, this should be even. Um, but I think since we we're growing a lot through performance marketing channels and there's a lot of you know, lookalike audiences, uh, um, uh, you know those features, uh, then um, maybe we... Um, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, and we add um, more audio-affine people because they are they have a higher affinity to pay for digital subscriptions, and um, we have it's easier for us to target them. So um, audio is working better for us, but we haven't given up on 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 reading because uh, there is a lot of readers out there. Yeah, and just one thing that sh uh, I was curious: the the books that I've listened to, they've been uh, read professionally or by the authors. Um, is that have have you guys explored any speech uh, text to speech sort of uh, options to kind of streamline you know getting getting some of your your books onto into an audio format? Um, 
not really. I mean, we know the, the technology that is out there, but um, the experience is so, um, so inferior to a recorded experience. And since we have 15 minutes um, of really dense information, um, uh, we want to we wanna focus on a recorded, um, recorded audio versions. It's also, it's not a big cost driver. You can get very good, um, good narrators and talent um, that record 15 minutes at, a, at an okay price. We, you know, we don't have to record 10, 10 hour audiobooks without right. a 15 minute version. So we can afford it and it, it makes the experience so much better. Also, knowledge retention is so much better when you, when you get a more pronounced um, and, and uh, um, narrated uh, version instead of a text to speech version. Yeah, it makes sense. And it, it's, it's just interesting as the world, you know, we, we keep finding technical solutions to, to problems. Yeah. I was just curious how that's, if that's impacted you, but it's, it, it does make sense. I mean, Even, it yeah. is a really nice experience to listen to somebody, you know, reading the book in a very natural sort of uh, tone. We still get a lot of feedback though. You know, you can't make it right for people. Some want more <laughs> British, uh, British narrators, some want more American narrators, some want more men, <laughs> some want more women. So that's really, it's a really binary topic. Either you love it or hate it. You, hate, you either love or hate a voice. <laughs> so um, eventually, you know, I think if technology is, is there, we will consider text-to-speech because then we can more easily offer different, you know, different, different voices um, um, so customers can select their voice. Yeah, I mean, that, that technology certainly has improved, but I, it's, it's not natural language yet. So interesting. And just, you know, I'd like to learn a little bit more about your business model, how you guys are making money. Um, I noticed that you only offer your trial for the annual subscription, uh, at least on uh, on mobile. And I was just curious, uh, like, you know, how how did how and why did you make that decision? I mean, we prefer customers signing up for an annual subscription because it gives us a faster return on investment. So, as I said, we invest a lot in paid acquisition, and someone subscribes for an annual subscription, we get that return right away and can spin the wheel faster. If, if they um, subscribe for monthly subscriptions, we need to wait longer um, for the money to be returned. So there's, that's a reason uh, why we as a business um, yeah, benefit from annual subscriptions. Also, lifetime values are higher. Uh, but also from a customer perspective, we learned that Linkist is a product. Some, some customers use us on a daily or weekly basis, but there are also customers who use us you know, once a quarter for a week when they're on vacation that have these... Uh, streaks of of reading or listening for a week, and then they then they ghost us for two um, two months. And we learned that if those customers are on annual subscription, and at the end of the year they look back, they they got a lot of value out of Blinkist, and they're happy to renew. But if they're on a monthly subscription and then have a month where they don't use it, sometimes they get frustrated and um, and churn, and then it's always harder to get a customer back on a subscription when uh, when she churned. So. That's uh, another reason why, from a psychological point of view, annual works better for us. That's why we incentivize annual. We push people uh, towards annual a little bit. Um, we're offering monthly, but we yeah, incentivize the annual. And that has worked very well for us. That make, has really helped us to kickstart our growth engine, as I, as I said before. Yeah, I imagine there's a lot of experimentation to get to that to, to that decision. Yeah. But uh, I actually I, I worked on a, on a mobile app that uh, had a similar situation where you had very different use cases where some people would get value 10 minutes after they use the product and then never use it again. And others would use it month in and month out. Some would use it very, you know, intermittently. And I think it's, it's very hard to kind of come up with the right model to service all of those. So, um, but annual, of course, um, has a lot of benefits as you, as you explained. And it's constant testing where we, we never stop learning in that regard. Pricing is such a, such an important lever and pricing is not just uh, you know, the dollar amount you charge, but also monthly, quarterly, annual, do you give a trial or not? How do you present uh, present things on a subscription screen? So every experiment we do, we run there is always um, yeah surprising results. Yeah, so that, that seems like a good transition actually to how you guys are in fact growing. Um, the so so you mentioned that you have a faster ROI with the when you go um, annual subscriptions and and. It's a re- really interesting approach how you're how you're doing that. You still have the monthly, but you clearly are steering people toward those annual. How how does that affect the payback window? Do you do you see like half the time that it ta- you don't have to give the specifics on what payback window you're optimizing yeah. toward? But is it does how much does it cut that payback? Oh, I'm window? happy to give you specifics. We're optimizing oh, for, that'd be great. for a ninety day uh, payback window. 
Um, okay. And then if you look at our conversion curves, uh, most of the conversion happens in the first week or like on day eight after the after the free trial ends. Um, so there's a lot of that. That's what we call lead conversions, the conversions we get right away. And then there's lag conversions. All the conver all the people who sign up don't subscribe right away, but convert um, at a later point in time. Um, and we have a high um, lead factor. Um, so we're optimizing for 90-day payback, but uh, actually 80% of our budget is, is um, returned after month one already. So that's that amazing. Yeah. To spin the wheel fast, because if not, we we will get a working capital problem eventually. Yeah, we did. We did the same thing at Log Me In, and um, we we mostly did it by just making our annual so much cheaper than than going monthly. I think it was kind of like you save sixty five percent if you went annual, and that that took us in, in, interestingly to a ninety day payback period as well. That's what that's what we were really um, optimizing on. But it uh, and and you know, before that, it was it was more than double that. So yeah, it made a huge impact. It's, it's surprising how, how many companies don't, don't leverage the, you know, pushing people toward the, the cash flow benefit of a, um, I think, I think because they have the assumption that, that it's going to cut significantly on the lifetime value. But one of the things that you said was that when you did that, your lifetime value actually got higher and yeah. it may just be the nature of your business, but that's, that's interesting. And that's also, I mean, we, we had to learn the hard way or, or not the hard way, but, uh, we, for a long time, we have operated under this, you know, your CAC, your, your customer acquisition cost should be one third of your LTV, and then you're considered a sustainable business by investors. So we always had a, had a target for customer acquisition costs uh, that we deducted from our lifetime value at, um, estimates. Um, and that's how we steered the business. But eventually, uh, we realized, well, you know, with this logic, we make us too dependent on um, further funding. Uh, we, we don't look at, at cash flow. Um, um, so and we may burn through our money too fast and then uh, require additional funding and then you're dependent on investors, which doesn't feel good for me uh, as an entrepreneur. No. <laughs> uh, so and eventually we, we said, well, let's, let's look at payback uh, and, and uh, steer the business in a way that it is independent. We can still raise money if we want, but um, we optimize for independency. Um, and that right. was, I think, um, two years ago we made that shift. Uh, and it, was it also gives you the ability to... to cycle those funds multiple times a year, much, yeah. much more often in a year versus if you have a long payback period. Yeah. So, so what are some of the other factors that, that affect growth in the business beyond the, the paid uh, customer acquisition? Um, we definitely see a lot of word of mouth. So we have a very stable organic ratio or untracked ratio. Um, it, it's, it's very stable around 45%. So 55% of our, of our uh, new customers come from track channels. So that's um, different paid acquisition channels. And then 45% come from untracked channels. And uh, a good portion of that is certainly, you know, view through traffic, people who, who see an ad but don't click uh, or who listen to a podcast ad and uh, don't go to the, to the podcast landing page, but rather uh, directly to, our, to the app store. But then a very good portion of that is word of mouth. Blinkist isn't, or people, when, when people learn something, they talk about it. You know, you wanna, people want to be knowledgeable or people want to share what they learned um, and help others out. So we have this inherent um, um, referral mechanism built in, and that helps us a lot. So um, the better we are in engaging customers with great content and then and, and keeping them engaged, um, um, the better we can, you know, we can we can grow through uh, through word of mouth. Um, yeah. Have you tried anything with, or maybe you have something with like affiliate authors? So we do have um, an affiliate program. I mean, it's we, I consider that also paid acquisition. So we're, our paid acquisition mix is very broad from Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter. We are, uh, spend a lot of money on Outbrain and Taboola, paid content. Do have an affiliate program, podcast, influencer, a little bit of TV, the Google ecosystem. So uh, almost all channels. We don't do out of home so far, but we're in, in all the we're present in all the digital channels. Um, and affiliate is one of them. Um, we also, we have a referral system. So you can, as a customer, you can refer um, Blinkist to your friends and they get 30 days for free. Um, but that's, we, we never put a lot of effort on referral because we, we saw that those referrals happen organically. So right, we don't even right, need yeah, to incentivize yeah. them, but they rather happen organically. And if we incentivize them too much, then we make a free channel, uh, actually a paid channel. And that, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. Cause I was, I was always worried about that with log me in. And then, um, we were, 
at Dropbox, it was so early that there wasn't a lot of risk in saying, hey, let's just test a, an incentive on this. And, and it was interesting to see just how much acceleration happened on those referrals when, when we added the incentive to it. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's hard though, because, you know, if it's happening naturally, I was always worried that like you, you suddenly put compensation with it and then it could actually even slow it down. So, yeah. um, I think what well, we haven't cracked yet, but that's a, a bigger endeavor, which we haven't uh, digged into yet. You know, for, for Dropbox, I believe, like sharing, you had an incentive yourself because like our Dropbox is an inherently social tool. You want to share files with, with friends mostly. Um, and uh, that's why you need to invite friends. So there, sharing it w- was a network effect. It made the product better for, for both uh, sides. But Blinkist, we don't, have the, you know, we, don't, we don't have community features built in. So you can't follow friends. You can't share reading lists or stuff like that. So if you share it right now, there's no benefit for you, um, in the, which makes, you know, creates a better, bigger login, uh, login. And that's something we've contemplated and something we may build eventually. But it's a, um, there are other priorities right now uh, that are um, a little easier to build and uh, right. prioritize. Yeah. yeah, that's the that's the hard thing is there's usually so so many things you could be oh, doing. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> trying to figure out the ones you actually put the put enough focus on for them to be successful. But it does feel like to me that um, you know, like as soon as I heard my book on there, it, it felt like I could be a really good channel for you guys by promoting my the blinkest version of my book, and particularly if there was an incentive. Um, you know, kind of an affiliate incentive. If people then ended up paying for the the, the full Blinkist, um, it like that that they're somehow that that somehow um, seems like a, a good channel to to potentially tap yeah. into. Have you have you tried anything directly with the authors? I mean, we should definitely talk after that podcast about about that. Um, <laughs> we, uh, uh, the short answer is no, because um, usually the intermediary between us and authors are publishers. Um, so we need, you know, deals with publishers or need to get publishers excited to get access to the authors because a lot of authors tell us, you know, I would love to work with you, but uh, um, as long as uh, you haven't figured out things with my publisher, I feel like I can't. Um, oh, okay, so got it. That's, that's a challenge. We, do ha- we, we recently launched shortcasts, which is key insights from podcasts. And we, we create those shortcasts in collaboration with the, with the creators. Um, and that's where, you know, that's where we already leverage affiliate systems. Um, then we, we have direct access to the creators and there's no intermediary in between. And then, by the way, I don't want to talk too, too bad about publishers. We're making progress and we're having, you know, there are a lot of people that working for publishers that are fans and that want to work for us. It's just, it's, it's a big industry, it's big companies and it takes a little longer to, um, to yeah, to, to really set up these collaboration collaborations deeply. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, definitely the the complication of the of the publisher layer in there, and I'm pr- I'm probably just too clueless to know that I'd be stepping on the toes <laughs> of my publisher if I if I did something like that. But I'm sure they'd let me know. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, one of the things that I've noticed, particularly with this podcast, which was which was kind of um, disturbing to me, that I had all this. I, I launched only you know maybe a little over a year ago and had this great momentum every week, getting more popular. COVID hit. And suddenly the listeners like dropped in half because I, I think it was because their commutes uh, got got cut uh, or or disappeared completely. Have you found um, have you found that that COVID affected your business in a in a similar way in terms of you know less less kind of commute listeners? Yes, definitely. We're in the same boat here. The commute spike and commute was one of the big use cases for us, and that was gone in lockdowns. And it came back a little bit in summer. Now it's gone again. So. It definitely hurt us. Um, so, so people uh, overall engagement dropped because uh, some people replaced the commute. Uh, you know, they, they found new uh, new pockets of time on their day to, to Blinkist in, but some didn't manage to, um, and that made it harder to retain or engage people. And you know, through engagement comes word of mouth. So we also suffered on the new business side a little bit. It's we are in a lucky position, as I said before. We we steer the business uh, with independence in mind, so we can get through this time um, without losing money um, and, and the business is safe. We're still growing, but we're not growing as fast as we wanted to grow and and we don't see the engagement that we want to see. Right. And I, I mean, I think there's a lot of businesses that were directly affected. It's interesting. Yeah, my, my time at Eventbrite, it was interesting to see kind of Eventbrite, great growth, IPO and then and then watching their stock with, with the uh, with the pandemic drop to I think it was like 
five dollars or <laughs> like in the fives at one point, but just over the last month, as the um, you know as different vaccines and other things came out, they're 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 back up to fifteen dollars a share. And I mean, like everyone knows that the pandemic's not going to last forever. So I think the biggest thing is. Yeah, you know, surviving through the pandemic as a business and and making sure that because the fundamentals that that work pre-pandemic will probably still work post-pandemic. There may be a little less commuting actually um, in terms of kind of like longer term changes. But did you did you definitely? I, I guess if as long as you were holding yourself to that um, payback period in in your marketing, then then maybe there was fewer opportunities to get that fast payback period. But you you already it sounds like you were pretty conservative in how you approach customer acquisition is there is there anything else that it kind of affected in terms of aggressiveness i mean it's no technically we we scaled a little bit back on on user acquisition to make to make sure we yeah we run that efficiently we considered investments you know um and, and looked at do we really need to hire this uh, additional uh, person do we really need to invest in this and that uh, and do too many things at the same time so we we looked at everything and and cut here and there without uh, like we didn't we didn't need to lay anyone off um, and we uh, we didn't need to make any any really hard decisions um, but had to you know look a little closer and it was also i mean to a certain extent it also helped us to to turn some stones that we haven't turned in a long time and to to you know just um, apply um, an efficiency program that you need to apply every now and then as you've grown so fast as an organization that sometimes you um, and as an entrepreneur um, I'm very opportunity driven. I, I love to say yes to a lot of things because I'm optimistic and believe, uh, um, always assume something great will come out of it. And then sometimes, or in, a, in times like this, I'm learning to say no more often and to really walk the walk when it comes to focus because I preach focus a lot, but then actually, actually re to really focus uh, means to say no to things uh, and, yep. <laughs> uh, and to opportunities. And that's, that's what we learned in this pandemic. Yeah. And so one of the things that you taught, you've kind of brought up a few times through this conversation is that um, engagement suffered or we see engagement, um, you know, maybe over you know, pe people's usage period, they stop for a while, they start back up. And so it feels like engagement is a really important um, area that you focus on in the business. Do you, is there a specific metric around engagement that you're using? Yes. Um, our, our company, North Star, is monthly engaged learners, which is technically monthly active customers. Uh, so uh, every uh, customer that has a content interaction is an engaged learner in our definition. And that's the metric that we track most closely um, in, app, in both absolute terms, but then also in relative terms, how many of our paying customers engage with Blickist every month. Um, and so this is the company North Star, and then um, we look at you know a lot of metrics that are, I guess, that every company looks at from you know new business, renewal business, the the investment, the marketing invest, ROI, uh, paid organic ratio, um, renewal rates for yearly, for monthly. Um, the uh, that that's on the growth side, and on the engagement side, we look at activation. So how many? You know, what's our uh, visit to sign up to to purchase rate? Uh, we look at, um, at retention co cohorts or so retention curves, week one to week four, month one to month 12 retention, and then also um, intensity. So for people that are engaged, how many titles do they, uh, do they, do they consume every, every month? So that, and then yeah. how, how, do you, how do you change sort of the metrics you focus on with the broader team versus your investors? Is it, is it a lot of the same metrics or do your investors kind of say, just show me the, the, the dollar numbers, that's what matters the most? Or um, do, do you find that you're, you're emphasizing all, pretty much the same numbers, both with investors and, and with the broader team? It's pretty much the same numbers. I mean, our investors get every, every month, they get a financial reporting, which is where we financially driven revenue, new new and renewal and, and costs and, and profit or loss. But then every quarter when we um, when we go for, um, when we meet for a board meeting, um, we share them the full deck that also our team sees. Uh, so they get a, a pretty long pre-read with a management update with all the numbers, all the metrics that I shared so they can um, obviously see the you know see the high level metrics but also can drill deeper um, because I want them to um, the more they know uh, the better they can support or the better they can help us see things we don't see because sometimes you know when you're too deep in the business you sometimes don't see something and then they call out hey by the way your um like, you know your 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 profitability in, in in the german speaking region is much higher than in us you should maybe shift 
you know, uh, allocation, uh, marketing allocation a little bit. And sometimes you, you need someone, an outsider uh, with a fresh perspective to see these little things. Um, yep. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. But it, but it also, you know, in terms of maybe the finances are the final output that they really care about. But if they don't understand the machine that, that fills the sustainability of growth of the, the, the financial metrics, then, uh, then, then, then they can maybe steer under investment in some, some areas or you have to sell harder investment. That It's better if they actually understand how the whole system works. Definitely. And we're very lucky we have investors that are, you know, that a lot of them have been operators before. So they're not the classic finance guy who just cares about the, the, the revenue, but they love to go deep and they have a, they have a good perspective and, um, and experience and can compare metrics with other companies and, uh, and, and help with benchmarks. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think Ethan wants to dig into the, the organization to some degree here and, and, and this, uh, and metrics are obviously a hard, a, a big part of kind of holding the organization accountable. So, um, Ethan, I'm, I'm, I'm curious sort of where you, where you want to dig on the organization side with this. Yeah, I think I wanted to actually start with, you know, if you can tell us a little bit about as you've grown, how the organization has changed in terms of where did you start in terms of how you, how you manage growth and, and, you know, your different teams of product marketing and, and growth and where, and where is that today versus, you know, when you started? Yeah, it's, it, it has started messy and it still is messy. I think organization <laughs> It's always, there's no frictionless setup. Like I think you always, our, our goal is always to find the setup with the least friction, but, um, but it, it's always messy because there's no, yeah, there's, you know, when, when people work together cross-functionally, it becomes messy um, because we are all, um, yeah, we're, we're humans. Um, but yeah, we, we started with a very classical um, functional setup. So we had a marketing team, we had a product team, we had a, um, an engineering team, um, a people team and so on and so forth um, and functionally like as in reporting lines we still have that so there's still a marketing team and a, and a, and a product team and an engineering team but um, what we learned over time is that while you know these functional reporting lines help to to you know give people guidance so if you're a product manager you want to have a director product who can help you to grow who can give you feedback and if you're a, a channel manager on on facebook you want to have a um, a Facebook lead or a paid social lead that helps you, uh, that does one-on-ones with you and then helps you to get better. Um, so we learned that these functional reporting lines make sense, but then most of the work happens cross-functionally. So um, marketing has to collaborate with product in order to, to make growth work. We need, um, if we run, I don't know, campaigns on paid content on Outbrain Tabula, we need a, um, a web-based funnel. We need a, a you know, landing pages or a magazine that hosts the article that we share. We need good conversion elements. We need to track that from end to end. So almost every marketing um, activity is a, a needs product uh, and, and, engine and, and engineering and, and data. Uh, so it's a cross-functional effort. And the same um, when, you, when product is too siloed and just builds features based on what they think is right without you know, marketers being involved and learning from what, what resonates with people in marketing um, then they build um, without the customer in mind, or they build, uh, yeah, without you know, uh, without um, quick market feedback. So in order to to break uh, down those silos that um, appeared over time um, in these functional setups, we created a, a cross-functional org on top of that reporting org, and we call that. So every every half year we create missions, and a mission is basically a cross-functional team. It has a mission lead, and then. And, and it has a certain goal, and then it's stuffed. So, for example, we have uh, um, right now there uh, there there was a, or in the past there was a mission to crack paid content when we didn't when we didn't uh, when we weren't advertising on Outbrain and Tabula, um, but we wanted to crack it. We um, we decided to form a mission. So we had a channel manager, a copywriter, a web team, like a web product team with designer, product manager, and engineers, and and an analyst. And, and told them, well, your goal is to crack that um, to crack that channel, so go for it. And you're fully stuffed, uh, um, regardless of reporting lines. Um, so I love that. Yeah, That's super cool. That helped a lot. That requires, you know, some some more effort in the planning, and you need to, you know, really align on strategy. You need to staff those missions, and uh, um, and yeah, it takes a while to set it up. But then everyone has clarity on what their goal is, and what's their priority number one is or what their priority number one is. And 
um, it uh, creates a much faster execution. Has that North Star metric of monthly engaged learners sort of helped uh, help that cross functionality and, and to, has it helped break down those silos specifically or um, are there other tools that you've used that have helped there? Yeah. So yes, that has certainly helped because ultimately all the missions strive to that North Star, um, both whether we, either whether we increase engagement or new business, everything drives up monthly engaged learners if it works well. So that has, you know, that gives people purpose because they know they're not just doing it for, I mean, some are, um, especially in, in marketing, so, uh, people can get very excited about hitting revenue goals, but a lot of people are not excited about hitting revenue goals and they're it's more important to yeah put the customer front and center and the the, the actual purpose why we're, why we're doing it. So that has certainly helped. But then um, I think the other thing is really just clarity, clarity on what a, how how do you fit into the bigger picture. Uh, so what is what is your mission? What is your purpose of being here in the next six months? And 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 with that clarity, also empowerment to say no to other things to say like. This is what we expect you to do, and we expect you to do nothing else. So, uh, if someone pulls you in another direction, say no. Uh, so that has that has really helped. It, it, it provides clarity for people, gives them purpose, and it empowers them um, to then take the, take their own decisions. Um, and yeah, and it's far. I mean, it's it sounds nicer when I say it here. It's still a lot of friction. There's still obviously <laughs> reality. Then sure. there's still you know um, people coming to the CRM manager that is in one mission and saying, hey. I need this little campaign. Can you please help out? Or analysts uh, are always stretched thin. So there's still a lot of pulling into different directions happening. Uh, it's never perfect. And missions are uh, always understaffed. Um, but uh, it's it's working much better than in the early days. In the early days, you know, we founders or the, the senior leadership team, we always had to negotiate. We always had to, you know... It, Things would uh, would be escalated to us. Hey, uh, you know, I need a web team. Um, uh, we should focus on that in the next sprint or this. Uh, and then we always needed to make these very tactical decisions. That was, it, we were a bottleneck, and it also wasn't very empowering for the teams. Um, but but just a lot of stress for everyone. Yeah, I, I think that's that's super. Uh, it, it's super interesting to hear you describe it that way. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got was when I started my last uh, my my big role at Teltech. Uh, I asked, actually asked Sean before I started, I said, what's your, your, your key piece of advice for me as I try to lead growth? And he said, teach everyone their role in growth. Um, and we've sort of expanded that to be teach everyone their role in growth against the North Star metric. And it sounds like that's really a big part of your culture is making sure people understand how their, their individual work, their, their team how that produces value to the company. Yeah. So it's really interesting yeah, to hear. I, I mean, I'm not an author and teacher, so I can't can't say it with such nice and succinct words, but that's exactly <laughs> it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was, so, it was good advice in one way or another. <laughs> compared to most of my advice. <laughs> so you mentioned that, you know, one of the things that your analysts are, are, are stretched pretty thin. Um, how, how much, and you also talked about empowerment, how much uh, kind of uh, em empowerment does the broader team have to, and, and, and capability does a broader team have to pull their own data to, to really understand what's going on in the business at any given time? I mean, not as much as I would like to. We're still working on it. My, my vision for Blink is, is I want it to be very data-driven. I believe, like, and by the way, I'm not, I think there are a lot of decisions that are more art than science. So I still believe in intuition, but uh, good intuition needs to be nurtured by data that is quantitative and qualitative. So, and, and for that, I, I want people to... Um, I hate it when, um, uh, yeah, for, for the example, not, not, uh, um, not, not thinking of specific names here, but when a product manager isn't data-driven but needs uh, an analyst that babysits uh, him or her um, to say, hey, have you considered this data and that data? Uh, we, we have great product managers, so it's really just a, a random example. Um, and the decision-makers need to be data-driven by themselves, and then they need analysts to, you know, sometimes we need deeper analysis or sometimes we need to, you know, have something fixed. And that's where the analysts come in. The analysts should be sparing partners, but not babysitters. Um, and we, we try to do that. Or we, we empower the organization we have, we're working with Amplitude, which is a, a self-serve tool. So um, that empowers everyone to, you know, put together their own dashboards, uh, drill down, do cohort analysis and go very deep on the product. And then we have Periscope, which is a, 
a less self-service, uh, so you can't uh, create a lot of own dashboards, but there you can, you know, um, uh, the, the business intelligence team can create some, some predefined dashboards and then people can easily access what's the performance of my Facebook campaign from yesterday and can easily dig into such things and, and, and filter, um, filter for certain um, criteria. So these are the two, two um, you know, employee-facing tools that we're using to, um, to empower people to do their own analysis and, and get data quickly. And then, yeah, just analysts doing ad hoc analysis and then digging deeper um, when those tools are not, uh, not enough. Yeah, hopefully, like, yeah, the analysts can be freed up for the really um, kind of deeper analytical work. But I, I definitely have found that a lot of organizations, including ones where I've run the organization and even even hold myself guilty of just not for a long time, not taking the time to really learn amplitude. And so just using a few canned reports versus once I finally once I finally got really good within Amplitude, I found I became a lot more curious to dig in and really understand what was going on. And seeing that happen across other teams, it's just, you know, teams that understand what's going on are in a lot better position to improve what's going on. And so it's, uh, it's, it's and really I, important. And I can also, like, I can share a story. I, I learned uh, SQL uh, um, as a CEO of Blinkist in the early days in 2013 when uh, we barely had a data warehouse. I pushed my CDO to, to give me a warehouse and then I taught myself to, to run queries to make analysis. And then I, I built the first, you know, before we hired the first, before we made the first BI hire, I built everything myself. I built the dashboards and, uh, um, and on Periscope and did the transformations. And I, I'm still using, you know, I still have sometimes um, uh, when I have time or when I, you know, when I'm in the right mindset, I sometimes go deep on data, um, and then sometimes I do I do that uh, directly in the uh, with SQL uh, to, and it helps me. It helps me to nurture my intuition and and make better decisions. It's a I think it's a superpower for anyone working in growth to 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 uh, to, to know how to get their data, whether that's through Amplitude or Periscope, or whether by, by going directly in the database. You can do so many things faster when you know when you don't rely on analysts. Um, Absolutely. And you're, and you're just a lot more curious when you can keep kind of digging that next yeah. layer versus being dependent on someone else. Definitely. And it's no rocket science. Everyone who, who has worked with Excel, uh, uh, Google Sheets can, can learn SQL. Uh, Absolutely. So yeah, speaking of kind of understanding what's going on, maybe a good, good way to wrap up. And we've touched on a lot of this, but um, really the, the typical path someone takes from how they discover Blinkist to what is the point where that light bulb really goes off and they, they're like, oh my God, I can't live without this thing. And, and really how, how you continue to drive engagement, retention, referral. But we, we don't need to go into a ton of detail on each because we're, we're getting short on time. But if you could maybe take us through that path, at least to where they become a raving fan of, of Blinkist, that would be great. Yeah, sure. I mean, on acquisition, I already talked a lot about that. We have really, we're um, in, in a lot of, in broad channels. Uh, so there are a lot of entry points for customers to, to hear about Blinkist. When they come to us, they usually um, are driven to the app store because the app is still our core, um, our core product. Uh, and then um, we, we're working heavily on the app onboarding um, to, you know, let people already give us some information, what they're interested in, to build the first library for them to, to customize the experience. And then we usually try to get them into a seven-day free trial um, um, because we want to make money, to be uh, fully frank, but also because uh, getting people to commit um, in the first session really helps to activate them. Because if you don't get them to commit in the first session, it gets harder and harder. Then you know, the, the world is so noisy. Um, there's so many things you could try. Um, then it's easy to to forget that app that you downloaded the other day. So we really try to get a commitment from people in the first session. Um, and that usually happens um, on our mobile app. We're trying, uh, we're working hard on uh, shifting more of our acquisition and activation um, traffic to web because um, um, if we can lock them in on web, we don't have to pay 30% to Apple or Google. So it's commercially better. Um, and we can track better. Like, you know, Apple with the IDFA, uh, once they kill IDFA, it gets harder for us to, to, um, to track our customers and learn which campaigns they came from. And on web, we have much more flexibility. So that's a big challenge because our core product is a mobile app and, and um, converting people on, on a website without uh, making them see the app um, is a little challenging, but there is a lot of effort going into that. But then once people are 
when people have gone through the onboarding and um, committed to a seven-day free trial, or if, even if they skip the first screen, they can discover our library. Um, and then when they want to uh, read or listen to a title, then we, um, we, um, we show the paywall again and, and, and ask them to, to uh, commit to a seven-day free trial. Um, and once that happened, um, they are in. They can um, listen to everything, discover everything. Um, and we, um, we are yeah, trying to really activate that. And usually, um, we're really good at um, activating people. A lot of people, um, or the average uh, amount of titles that people consume in, the first, um, in, in those first seven days is close to 10. So people make use of the trial, and um, people make use of the, of the first month. Our biggest challenge is to keep them engaged because some eventually forget to, to use us. Um, um, so we're good at and strong at act and conversion and activation. We have some work to do on longer term engagement because, yeah, the world is a noisy place. There's a lot of uh, things people could do. We, are, um, we need to lean in to use Blinkist and really get something out of it. It's not like, you know, it's not like listening to a, a song on Spotify, which you do more passively, which is more a laid back experience. So it requires some commitment and like going to the gym, uh, like working out frequently um, or eating healthy. It's a, it's a habit that uh, for, for some people is hard to keep. So that's, that's our core challenge. Um, um, but yeah, seems, made, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, it seems like you've, uh, you have been leaning in on, on that. Uh, we, we both, Sean and I both noticed that when you finish a book, um, there's like an autoplay of a related book. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? And like, is, was that, is, has that been a process of experimentation on that? Yes, it has. And it worked, um, it definitely increased engagement because discovery is one of the, one of the toughest, uh, um, or one of the key levers for us um, to, to increase engagement. When you open the app and you don't find a book that is relevant for you, you leave and you may not come back. When, you, when the title is finished, and uh, we don't provide you with a title that is relevant for you right away. You, you may close the app and never come back. Um, so uh, discovery, whether that's, you know, through automated recommendation or th um, um, after, you list, after you finish something or whether that's through editorial recommendations uh, that provide more context and relevance for titles is, is high on our um, priority list. So there's one mission actually around... Um, uh, we call it, you know, uh, developing Blinkist into a trusted guide. Uh, we're too much of a library still, um, and we need to become uh, more of a trusted guide, a smart companion, you know, that teacher that you had in school that sparked your curiosity for a certain topic um, and, and really made you love that topic and dig deeper. Uh, um, I had one, one of those teachers. The other, others weren't that successful. But that, that's what we have to reach. And we were doing a good job for a lot of people already, but not for all. Um, and that's, that's, that's where we have to focus. Man, I wish we could talk all day about that. Cause you have so many opportunities with like machine learning and AI and yeah. things you could do on that front. But, um, I, I know, uh, we're running up on our, on our hour here. So just kind of one last question that we always like to, to ask our guests is what do you feel like you understand about growth now that maybe you didn't understand a few years ago or that something Blinkist taught you in the past couple of years? I think it's like growth is a good mix of art and science. In the beginning, I, I thought it was a complete art and I learned that there's a lot of science behind it. There's a lot of that it's about creating um, a machine that can iterate fast and uh, being really data driven and, and just testing a lot and um, that you can't always explain with intuition um, what works and what doesn't. You just need to test. Um, but at the same time, it remains to be an art. And I think that's where a lot of startups at least here in berlin um eventually struggle uh, i think um and also where we where we still have to have to learn more and um, we're very you know we we've, we've become very good on the science part and have a well-oiled machine that is optimized um into you know into the little detail and and we we iterate fast but then it's also about really deeply understanding your customers, not just your current customers, but also the adjacent potential potential customers. And from that deep understanding, hitting a nerve, you know, having that from that inside, really finding the right message uh, that resonates with people uh, and delivering that message through the right channel uh, and the right creative at the right time. Um, you, people shouldn't underestimate that um, because sometimes, yeah, the right creative at the right time can, uh, can, can, um, just uh, double your growth rate. Um, and that's, that's what I see a lot of companies here in Berlin, at least, 
not focusing uh, um, enough on. Yeah, this is this has been fantastic, Holger. I, I, you know, some of the the key takeaways that I have. Uh, one, it, it feels like you know you and and the team are really focused on that broader mission of of fitting learning into lives, and I and I think having that that mission front and center helped you make that transition quickly to audio when you thought, okay, this is this is the way people want to learn, and so you could, you could kind of see that that was in within the mission. But then I also love this. I haven't really heard. It, it kind of stated this way, the kind of smaller missions that you talked about, like cracking paid content and using that art and science that you just touched on through, you know, feeding experimentation to keep learning and evolving the business and, and, you know, be, being disciplined, having those, you know, the, the, the payback period to, to really um, make sure that you're not being uh, reckless as you experiment, but, um, but just continue to drive, better and better uh, results, I think, within within what you're doing through that experimentation. So it's a it's an exciting story with Blinkist, and I'm sure it's going to continue to be exciting going forward. So thanks for sharing the snapshot of where you are right now. And I know Ethan and I and probably all the listeners are going to be pretty excited to, to, to tune in and watch you going forward from here. Perfect. Thanks a lot for having me. It was a great conversation. All right. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thanks, everyone. This is great. Thanks for listening to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Please take a moment to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, subscribe so you never miss a show. Until next week.